言论自由。Hi, I'm Katie Engelhart, and I'm Brian Pellet. Welcome back to On Free Speech, our monthly podcast from FreeSpeechDebate.com. Here's the rundown for this episode. We'll kick off with former head of Al Jazeera, Wada Kanfar, who spoke to us about how citizen journalists revolutionized news gathering during the Arab uprisings. We'll also bring you the best from our recent panel discussion on the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement. Following hot on the heels of SOPA and PIPA, ACTA is the latest copyright enforcement bill to have netizens up in arms. Stay tuned to find out what Swedish Pirate Party member Amelia Anders' daughter has to say about it. You'll hear my interview with the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Jillian York about motivations and ethics behind hacktivism. You'll also hear Lauren Wolf on her new project, Women Under Siege, which crowdsources instances of rape and sexual violence in war zones. We'll wrap up with FSDT member Dominic Burbage, who wrote a case study on whether Christians in the UK should be able to wear the cross at work. But first, Wada Kanfar, who spoke to us about the interplay between traditional and citizen journalism. According to Kanfar, Al Jazeera editors were forced to rely on citizen journalists after the broadcaster was banned from covering the uprising in Egypt last year. May I always say we went there because of necessity, but later on we embraced it because of choice, because we found great value in incorporating and in integrating social networks within the mainstream. Within newsrooms, Kanfar says the result was win-win. Al Jazeera's coverage was strengthened, and citizen journalists refined their skills. For Kanfar, this new partnership has given rise to a generation of smart bloggers, skilled citizen reporters who have never studied journalism or worked in a newsroom. But he dismissed the claims that Al Jazeera's coverage was biased under his watch, a criticism frequently leveled against the Qatar-funded broadcaster. Kanfar stressed the importance of impartial media, especially in the wake of the Arab Spring. A lot of people are coming up with channels to defend their way of thinking. There is chaos. Right now, we need professional TV stations, balanced one. They have great standards of journalism to share with the people current events in a manner that allow the people a healthy environment of debate and discussion and creating consensus, rather than have that fragmentation and chaotic scene. Journalists are actually leading at this moment in time. I delved further into the topic of citizen journalism at World Press Freedom Day in Tunis, where I interviewed Moed Ahmed, head of new media at Al Jazeera. Since December 2010, more than 70,000 user-generated news videos have been uploaded to Al Jazeera's site. You can hear the interview under the Watch and Listen tab at FreeSpeechDebate.com. While in Tunis, I also spoke with Lauren Wolf, director of Women Under Siege. Here's the clip. Thanks for joining us, Lauren. Hi. Thanks. Uh, so why don't you just go ahead and tell us what the project is? Sure. Women Under Siege was founded by the feminist activist Gloria Steinem as a means of documenting rape in war and specifically breaking down how it's used as a tool of war. So what I've done is launched a website, WomenUnderSiegeProject.org, that dissects conflicts from the Holocaust to Congo to Syria to Libya to Egypt. I recently launched WomenUnderSiegeSyria.CrowdMap.com, which is a live crowdsourced site based on Ushahidi technology that is live tracking rape and sexual other kinds of sexualized violence in Syria. And so, why Syria? Why now? There were many choices. I could have chosen Congo or Burma or a number of places. Syria jumped out at me along the way because of the complexity of reporting and the amount of information and. The kind of convoluted information coming out—it was a real challenge to take on, and it seemed 
urgent and present. Okay, so I know you're a journalist by background. You were with the community to protect journalists for a while. Is that helping you at all in this role, that journalism background? Yes, very much, because this project on Syria has a number of dangers attached to it. So my background in press freedom and in protecting sources and being very aware of how access to information actually can hurt people using that information or providing that information is very much attached to the work I've done previously. What, what sort of security precautions do you take? I'm sure there's a lot of considerations that have to go into this. There are more than I ever could have imagined. When I started out, I knew nothing about Ushahidi. Um, it turned out to be very easy to use. What was not easy was trying to figure out how to not only protect our own process of collecting information and storing the information, which were, is very complex and very carefully done, and how to protect the people reporting in. Because security-wise, you're dealing with people who don't know how to protect themselves often, so you need to protect them as much as possible. So what I did was I went ahead and created a security page on the site where it gives suggestions. Use Tor, use Hushmail, do different things to keep yourself anonymous, and we give our word that we will take out their names and identifying information in return. There's a second aspect of the project that I'm implementing now, which is an SMS reporting system, and that is a whole other host of security nightmares. And how are you getting around some of those when people are using SMS? What I'm doing is setting up someone in Beirut, a trusted source of mine, who will be using frontline SMS to take in those reports. What I believe I'm doing is limitedly distributing the phone number. It will not go to the everyday citizen because I don't want to put that person in a position of texting the words, my sister was raped in Homs, and then have that person's text be stored on a server somewhere. So right now I'm thinking the number will only go to first responders, human rights workers in the region. Okay, uh, just looking at some of our principles on the site at Free Speech Debate, we have one that says we allow no taboos in the discussion and dissemination of knowledge. What do you think of the principle? I think that's a really remarkable thing to say. Everything surrounding the discussion of the rape of women is taboo in nearly every culture, if not every culture that I can think of. The dissemination of a, a single report of rape has consequences not only for the woman raped, but also for her family. In the Middle East, an entire family is disgraced. In parts of Central America, a woman who's been raped in Guatemala or Honduras is basically shunned from her house. In Darfur, women are made to go live in huts by themselves. So just the dissemination is so taboo that it keeps women from coming forward. So if we can somehow provide a safe way for women to talk about what's happened to them, to get medical and psychological counseling, that really comes from putting a spotlight on the situation, making it safe for them to report, but making the world know that this is happening so that they can get help. And I know your site is women under siege, but have you seen men use the site or do you anticipate that? Yes. Um, in fact, we are tracking men who are raped also in Syria. We have a whole category that, while the emphasis is on women, we have a whole category that recreates all the subcategories for men. And there are quite a number of reports of men being raped, especially in detention in Syria. So we're here in Tunis at World Press Freedom Day. And I'm just wondering specifically your site, what does it have to do with press? The project is run under the auspices of the Women's Media Center, and at first I was a little confused when I was hired on to, to create the project, but what I quickly realized is that women's stories are the stories that are not being told 
the rape of women in war is the second page story. It's the, the battle casualties you read about first. So what I really think is important is, is using the site as a megaphone to say that this is more than half the population that's suffering, and we need to start paying attention. We also have a principle that says, we neither make threats of violence nor accept violent intimidation. Does your project relate to this? And, and if so, how does it relate to that principle? The very idea that a woman's been raped circles around the idea of violent intimidation, but having us speak out on her behalf or whether she wants to speak out herself, that's a way of, of really moving forward and saying we won't accept this. Just in my own work, I recently published an article, an op-ed in The Guardian, co-bylines with Gloria Steinem. That day I received, and for the rest of the week I received hate mail, and my own personal website was hacked with an image of two soldiers, one was a woman, and the guy is saying to the, to the woman, get the F back into the kitchen. So that was a message meant to me. Quiet down, stop writing about what women are going through because I don't care. <laughs> that was disheartening, but it's almost shown me that there's a bigger problem than I even knew. All right, well, thank you very much for sitting down with us, and we wish you the best of luck with Women Under Siege. This month, Free Speech Debate and the NGO Article 19 held a panel discussion on the pros and cons of the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement. Article 19's Gabrielle Gamin summed up her NGO's concerns in three points. Firstly, the bill provides inadequate protection for freedom of expression and fundamental rights. Secondly, it puts pressure on internet service providers to disclose their customers' details. And thirdly, the bill's criminal provisions are unclear. And so, for example, you might think that it is okay to transfer a file uh, from your iPod, like a song, to your computer. But under ACTA, this type of behavior, which is fairly trivial, could potentially be criminalized and lead to criminal penalties. Andrew Murray, professor of law at the London School of Economics, played devil's advocate. We heard terms such as share and culture of sharing. Let, let's be honest, by share we mean copy. By copy we mean take without paying the person who created. You might call it stealing, you might not. Yet Murray too took issue with the bill. Unlike Gamin, Murray opposes ACTA, not because it infringes on any fundamental rights, but because it is poorly written. A consequence, he says, of the lack of input from civil society groups, relevant intellectual property drafting bodies, and the governments of emerging economies such as Brazil and India. Amelia Andersdotter, a member of the European Parliament for the Pirate Party in Sweden, provided interesting insight into the workings of the European Parliament. Andersdotter said that while some parties, such as the Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats, had rejected the bill, she believed others would opt for a renegotiation in June when the bill is scheduled for debate. What is really incomprehensible with the Parliament, though, is how they seem to be so reluctant to make up their mind. Many members of the parliament have been inherently incapable of saying whether they support or reject. And it's very surprising given that everyone in the building has been elected to make decisions. <laughs> now, here's Brian's interview with Gillian York. Director of International Freedom of Expression at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Thanks for joining us, Jillian. Thank you for having me. We're at the American Middle East Network for Dialogue at Stanford, and you just gave a talk about digital activism in the Middle East. 
Can you go ahead and just define for us what you mean by digital activism? Sure. So I don't like to draw a line between um, online and offline most of the time. And so I would say digital activism is any time that digital tools are used to enhance any type of campaign, really, be it social, political, or otherwise. And then looking at hacktivism, what are your thoughts on hacktivism? How does it differ from digital activism as a broader concept? It doesn't necessarily differ. It's, it's a part of digital activism. But generally speaking, particularly in an American context, when we're talking about hacktivism, we're usually talking about techniques and methods that are not legal. And so, which is not to say that they're always illegal, um, but generally when you think about hacking a website or defacing or conducting an attack against a website, those are commonly illegal activities, at least in the U.S. And what are some examples that we've seen recently in the news Sure. So one of the most prominent examples we've seen over the past couple of years is uh, when a number of companies um, banded together and blocked WikiLeaks from using their tools. So this happened with Amazon and PayPal and Visa and MasterCard and financial blockade against WikiLeaks. The anonymous collective basically hacked or conducted attacks rather against those websites. And so in those cases, it was a distributed denial of service attacks. Okay, and just looping it back into the Middle East, I know a similar thing happened with Syria and Harvard. This, is it the Syrian Electronic Army? Yeah, the, uh, the Syrian Electronic Army was, you know, using a, a variety of techniques, um, but then sort of escalated from propagandizing on social media sites to actually uh, taking down websites or um, defacing them. And so defacement is kind of like digital graffiti. And in this case, they went to Harvard University's website, got access to the site somehow, and uh, put up their sort of graffiti tag on the site saying Syrian Electronic Army was here. In response, some other groups, maybe affiliated with Anonymous, went and hacked the Syrian Ministry of Interior. But what they did was actually interesting. Rather than defacing it with just, we were here, they actually put up a guide uh, to how to stay safe online. So what are the motivations for hacktivism, and, and do you think it's effective? Sure. So I think the motivations differ depending on where you are and what the purpose is. But one line that I kind of see um, as, as a clear one is hacktivism activist activities targeting things within a democratic society versus outside of one. And so when you're in a democracy, be it a flawed democracy or a great one, uh, you have a bunch of different paths to recourse. And so when you look at what happened last fall with these anti-copyright bills, SOPA and PIPA, you had a lot of options for how to protest those. You could call your representative. You could, could go online and scream about it. You could write an op-ed in the newspaper. When you're talking about Syria, you don't have all of those options. And you've got the government essentially pulling dirty tricks on people uh, online, censoring and surveilling. And so I think that the strategy is in, and the motivation is very different in a society like that. You know, hacktivist activities there often are seen as far more legitimate, illegal or not. Uh, it's sort of, you know, a means to an end. And so you're the director of International Freedom of Expression at mm -hmm. the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And I'm just wondering how hacktivism factors into issues of free speech, because sometimes when there's a denial of service attack, it stops people from actually getting to these websites, which in a sense infringes on free speech. How do we wrap our heads around these dual motivations and dual outcomes? Sure. So I'll give the caveat that I'm not a lawyer. And so I'm going to talk about this not from a legal perspective, because like I said, most of these activities are illegal, at least in the US, but from a strategy perspective. And, you know, one thing that concerns me is that a lot of these activities, particularly things like distributed denial of service attacks and defacements, are just as commonly used against small independent media and human rights websites or bloggers websites, just as they are against, you know, PayPal or Visa or MasterCard. And so even if you think it's legitimate to use these tactics against 
against a major website or a government website, they do incredible harm and sometimes irreversible harm to these smaller players. And so this is really a difficult thing for a lot of these smaller actors. And we do see those attacks happen a lot back and forth between various political parties or countries. So that's one problem that I see. Um, and then another is just that, you know, when you do have other options, you know, these can seem sort of juvenile and sort of the, the quickest means to an end, but not necessarily the most effective. And of course, the other problem, which I think we were talking about earlier, is uh, I'll give an example. When you had uh, last fall, the BART system, the uh, transportation system in San Francisco, shut down telecommunications around a small protest. But one of the things that came out of it was that um, anonymous or, or a collective sort of went and hacked um, the user website for BART, and they made public the user details of a number of BART riders. And so that was a violation of those users' privacy. Now, they were trying to make the point that this website was not secure, but they didn't necessarily have to go so far as to publicize people's personal information. And that's where you've got problems coming in. So how do we teach or how can hacktivists learn moral and responsible hacking? I mean, is there a resource for that? That's a great question. Um, I don't happen to know what that resource is, but I'm sure that it exists. You know, I mean, I think really, if I were going to say it, I would probably say two things. The first is think about the collateral damage. Think about the ordinary citizens that you might be hurting with these activities. Um, the second thing that I would say is just, you know, think about whether or not you have another path to recourse when you are going about these activities. Um, can you affect change without attacking or, or defacing a website? You know, if the answer is no, then that might be your method. And the thing is, you know, I, I like to think of these as even even when they're illegal, they're still a form of nonviolent action. And so just like other forms of nonviolent action, sometimes you are committing a crime in order to make your point. And so I, like I said, I would see, do you have another path of action? Two of the most famous groups we've heard about in the news are Anonymous and LulzSec. And in Anonymous, right in the name, we see that anonymity is key for hacktivists. What role and how crucial a role do you think that anonymity plays in the risks these groups are able to take? Um, I think anonymity plays a huge role, but unfortunately, I think that that fact results in politicians and policymakers arguing against anonymity because you say, okay, if these people can commit a crime by being anonymous, then nobody should be anonymous on the internet. But the problem is that an anonymity is vital to other users of the internet too, from your activists to uh, an LGBT person in a small town to um, a, a, someone who su suffered domestic violence. I, you know, I think anonymity, of course, is crucial to people um, engaged in hacktivism, but it's also crucial to the rest of us. That was Brian speaking to Jillian York from the EFF. You can listen to the full interview under the Watch and Listen tab at freespeechdebate.com. Now, joining us in the studio is FSD team member Dominic Burbage, discussing whether Christians in the UK should be allowed to wear the cross at work. Hi Dominic, thanks for coming in. Hi, thank you. Why don't we start by talking about the case study? Yeah, so I think the important thing to distinguish in this case study is we are not discussing the rights to wear jewellery per se. This has not become interesting on the news because of whether jewellery conflicts with health and safety standards. This is a question of whether Christians have the right to wear the cross at work and how that interacts with uh, employer-employee relations. So that's where we see these two case studies come in. One is someone from British Airways who's suffered problems at work because of wearing cross uh, explicitly as an air hostess. The other is an NHS trust nurse who refused to remove her cross while at the workplace and for that reason was shelved back to a different position. So both of these women brought the issue of their suspension or relocation to courts of law. Do you want to talk about that? This is where things get really interesting because on the one hand we have a kind of look into 
what is it for an employer's regulations and what is the discretion of an employer in deciding what kind of jewellery or religious expression should be allowed at the workplace. And on the other hand, we have a human rights issue, um, and that is whether you have the freedom for religious expression regardless of these, uh, the discretion of employers. It's now turned into a human rights issue because these two ladies have taken their case to the European Courts of Human Rights, uh, specifically Article 9, um, looking at that freedom of conscience, freedom of religious expression, and saying that the cross for them counts as religious expression. You're being very sort of judicious here and holding back your own opinion, but I know we did ask you to give an opinion on our website. So if you don't mind sharing that, Dominic. Yeah, I don't mind uh, sharing my opinion. So, I mean, a further development that's recent is that the UK government now needs to take their case against the European Courts of Human Rights. And this is where it gets dangerous and sticky, because rather than saying that these are a health and safety violation um, of the workplace and therefore they should be disallowed on that more British practical edge. It seems to be they've gone the other extreme, which is to say that no, this is not an essential part of the faith. That I'd associate much more with a kind of more French approach of saying what is the state, what is the public space, and what is the private space, making a very clear distinction. But in the past, we've seen in Britain, pragmatism. We've seen a kind of common sense come together. The state is not going to make a huge judgment about religions. We live in a multicultural society. So we should, as much as possible, facilitate difference only when it becomes something very controversial, like, for example, when a primary school teacher wore a burqa. Not that we don't like Muslims or we believe this is a public space per se, but it's that the wearing of the burqa kind of complicated her teaching um, in that it made her less audible. It doesn't allow kind of facial expressions that you'd normally associate with primary school teaching. And in that debate, we saw more of a, a pragmatism. Dominic, I was wondering, do you feel like your own religious beliefs, your own faith, has influenced your views on this area? Yeah, big time. So I'm, I'm a Catholic. I don't wear a cross. I do wear a scapula, which is a small medal, um, which doesn't have a cross symbol on it, uh, but has other symbols on it. I, for example, sometimes wore a cross to my exams. So the cross, although it's not essential sometimes, for a lot of Christians, is an extremely important symbol of our faith. Now, what I find difficult about this debate is that in the UK, over time, it seems to be that whilst we did take the kind of common sense approach before, we now see that when rights are in conflict, each side has to advocate their position from a minority perspective. Where does this lead us? From my perspective, uh, what's difficult about this is that it promotes an incommunicability between groups. I should have my rights because you don't understand me. Hence, when we discuss the cross, we try to make it an essential thing on a par with how Muslims might need to wear the hijab. Sikhs may need to wear a turban as a requirement because we need to entrench something we're afraid of losing. Do you think we can compare the cross to some of these other symbols? I know that in various countries in Europe there have, say, been, been some exceptions made for the headscarf. Yeah, I think we can. I would avoid that what I said as a French approach of making the public space a place where you need to drop any religious credentials. And because uh, then we have to kind of say, well, how is it that we're framing the public space in terms of non-admittance for people of religious persuasion? Um, it may be we have a sense of modernity that eventually everyone will come around to the kind of secular understanding, but that biases the current debate 
um, in a way that infringes people's rights of expression. To go back to our conversation about the European Court of Human Rights, it seems to me, if I'm interpreting you correctly, that you would have found it you know, to be more of a fair debate if the UK government was going to the European Court with an argument about health and safety or an argument about practicality. Yeah, my thing is... Uh, Can you be sympathetic to the idea that perhaps it's not hygienic for a nurse to be wearing a necklace in, yeah, in a so, hospital? Yeah, so the specific problem with the nurse um, was that patients may grab it and then choke the nurse. Um, so in that sense, it's a kind of health and safety thing rather than the hygiene. But what we see in the European courts is a movement and appeal to Article 9. Now, on that debate, I don't believe that we should concentrate on health and safety because, as I said, we should distinguish here between debates on religious expression, debates on jewellery. Okay, Dominic, well, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. Thank you. Brian, what's this month's free speech indicator? 14.5%. That's the small portion of people who live in countries with free press, according to Freedom House's new report for 2012. Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt made the greatest improvements, whereas Chile and Hungary saw significant declines in press freedom. The worst countries this year were Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and North Korea, whereas Finland, Norway, and Sweden tied for the top spot in press freedom. Next month, we'll head to Google's UK Big Tent event to discuss some of the major issues facing the internet and society. FSD director Timothy Garton-Ash will also be heading to the Hay Literary Festival in Wales to talk about the site. Check out freespeechdebate.com for the latest interviews, case studies, and events. If you've got ideas for the podcast, tweet us at onfreespeech or write on our wall at facebook.com slash freespeechdebate. Until next month, goodbye. This is Adios. On Free Speech was produced by your host and FSD online editor, Mariam Omidi. Music was Sad Robot by Pornographique, Butterfly Lullaby by Posamist, and Gentle Marimba by Alistair Cameron. All of these are under a Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive.